that we know who we are. A celebrity went to uh, visit a nursing home for a charity event and was dismayed that no one seemed to recognize him. He started thinking that uh, perhaps the old folks were just being a bit polite, uh, not accosting him for autographs and the like. So he went up to one old lady and said, Do you know who I am? The lady smiled and instantly. The celebrity just felt reassured that his fame that he'd worked so hard for had not been uh, disappeared, had not slipped away. And the old lady said to him, Don't worry, the nurse will be along soon and she'll tell you who you are. Well, we've been working through the epistle of First Peter, and Peter has been over and over underlining for his readers their new identity as the new born again people of God. And it is so vital that we understand this. It was, it's as important for us today as it was for them, a minority group existing in a society that was getting increasingly hostile towards them because they were Christians. If we could just stick the PowerPoint up. Um, Over the last few weeks, the Secular Society of Scotland have started petitioning the Scottish government to change what happens in schools. And they're asking that they change it from, instead of parents opting out of Christian worship, that the parents would have to opt in to Christian worship. On Friday, the independent newspaper uh, picked up on a report by the National Secular Society with this alarming thought that evangelical Christian groups committed to converting young people are being allowed access to children in state schools because of inadequate um, RE teachers. And that these groups are going in proselytizing during RE lessons. uh, Going in there and pushing the idea that God created the world and their own brand of sex education. This was the alarming article in The Independent. We are starting to feel the disapproval of our society for believing the Bible and for following Jesus. It seems to me that the secular society has forgotten our history in Scotland, that it was in fact Christian churches that were the forefront of starting schools in this nation. Uh, It was because of Christian faith that the whole notion of a university was pioneered by Christian groups, that God was over all, therefore all truth was his truth, and it was the forefront of universities in the beginning of higher study and learning. It was the forefront of the scientific endeavor in the Royal Society. I don't know whether you saw the Brian Cox documentary, Science Britannica. I enjoyed it very much. But he sort of airbrushed out of it all the links of Christianity to the founding people of the Royal Society, which is the foremost scientific institution in the UK. Uh, He picked up the uh, first journal, the first scientific journal in the UK, which was published by the Royal Society. And he pointed out that the editorial was a brilliant description of what good science was all about and the importance of reporting scientific endeavor. And he, he read this quote, and, this, and the, the camera uh, focused on the page where he was reading, and he stopped, and his finger was just under the phrase that all this scientific endeavor was for the glory of God. Now, that got airbrushed out. And so it seems to me that... Um, Despite our heritage, 
The secular society wants us to feel shame. It wants us to, to, to marginalize us for daring to talk about our faith in Jesus Christ in the very institutions which are here today because of the Christian faith. But that's conveniently forgotten. Well, in such a chilly climate, it is important that we remember who we are. And so what does God have to say about that? Well, please open your Bibles to First Peter. And you'll find this uh, in the Church Bibles on page 1,218. 1,218. I'm going to read uh, from chapter 2, verse 4, down to 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Please keep your Bibles open. I've got one big idea, and uh, I'm going to examine two groups that flow from that. And here's the one big idea. Who you are depends on your response to Jesus Christ. Who you are depends on your response to Jesus Christ. Can I draw your attention to uh, verse 10? Once... You were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Do you see in this verse that there are two groups of people? There are people who have not received mercy, the mercy of God. And there, uh, those are people who are not part of the people of God. And there are those who have experienced mercy, mercy from God, and have become part of the people of God. you see that? It's quite clear, isn't it? And notice, too, that you can change from one group to the other. There was a time when his readers were not a people, but now a great change has happened. Now um, they are the people of God. 
There was a time when they were those who had not received mercy, but now they had received mercy. It's possible to change from one group to the other. Now, how does this change come about? How is it that you become part of the people of God? Well, the answer is right there in verse 4. As you come to him. As you come to him. Who? The living stone. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. It is by coming to a person. It is by coming to Jesus, the Messiah King. The one who, when he came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, was assessed by the leaders of the nation at the time to be unfit for purpose. And they rejected him and they crucified him. What a colossal misjudgment. What a monumental disaster to reject the very one who, in the sight of God, was the precious Messiah King. The one who he had sent to lead and save his people. The one on whom he was going to build the people of God. Central in God's saving purposes in history. And that is the one that they had rejected. Do you remember the baptism of Jesus? The heavens opened as God's Holy Spirit descended on him. And God's voice declared, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is, this is God's assessment of Jesus And Peter is taking up the words of prophecy from the Old Testament and describing Jesus as a stone. And there's these three descriptions of him. The living stone, verse 4, the cornerstone, verse 6, and the capstone, verse 7. And the reason that Peter uses this metaphor is because Jesus used it of himself. You can read through uh, uh, Mark and Matthew. You'll see that Jesus uses th- this, uh, this very imagery of himself. See, according to the Hebrew Scriptures, there was only one place that the people could come and offer sacrifices to God. There was only one place that they could come to meet with God, and that was at the temple. Uh, They couldn't do sacrifices anywhere they wanted to when they were established in the land. They had to come to that one place. And uh, it it was prefigured by the tabernacle, which was this tent that moved around when they moved around the wilderness. And if the people wanted to meet with God, offer sacrifices to God, relate to God, they had to come to the tabernacle. And when they were established in the land, they had to come to the temple. In the um, Old Testament, the, 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 the temple and, and its high position within Jerusalem was referred to as Mount Zion. It was, it was the place that people came to year after year to uh, offer their worship to God and show their allegiance to God. Now, Jesus explicitly taught that he came in fulfillment of that temple, that the tabernacle, that the temple were all pointing to the ultimate reality that was him. And so John's Gospel says at the start of his ministry, uh, he caused an absolute stir when he went into the temple. He went into the outer court, which was the space where the Gentiles were supposed to be allowed to come close to God. But it was being filled up with money changers, and it was like an animal market. And Jesus drove out all those people. And he declared, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus couldn't make it any clearer what he's saying is that this, this temple, Jesus, uh, John spells it out. By this, Jesus was referring to his own body and his resurrection from the dead. 
Jesus is the temple. He is the meeting place between God and man. This is what Jesus explicitly taught. And Peter is taking up that imagery and he's saying, he's describing him as the stone. But he's the living stone because he was the one who was raised from the dead. Never to die again and to everlasting life. Not only is he the living stone, but he's the cornerstone of this new spiritual temple. Um, If you want to come to know God, if you want to be made right with God, if you want to enjoy God, you have to come to Jesus Christ. He is the temple. He is the only meeting place. He is the cornerstone. And this is always what God intended. Um, Peter is quoting uh, from Isaiah chapter 28. You know, verse 6, that quote for in Scripture it says, well, that comes from Isaiah chapter 28. And, and, and in the context, it is God who is speaking. This is what it says in Isaiah. See, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. In Isaiah's day, in the 8th century before Christ, Isaiah is uh, prophesying the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, because the, the people of God had consistently disobeyed the covenant, and they were going to be judged, they were going to be cast out into exile. And, and it looked like it would all be over, but God promised that he was going to do a new thing. He would build a new temple in Jerusalem. He would start by laying the first foundation stone. Do you see, when Jesus was raised from the dead, this is God's mighty declaration that he is the foundation stone. He is the one on whom he is building this true spiritual temple, this true meeting place with God, the place of sacrifice and atonement, the place where we can enjoy relationship with God. Um, the cornerstone is the crucial stone, I understand, in a foundation. It sets the line, it sets the angle of the whole building. And all the other stones get their alignment from the foundation stone. Well, that's what Christ is. And, and the irony is that the, this was the very one that was rejected by the people of Israel. And yet this very one that was rejected, God has declared not only to be the cornerstone, but the capstone. Do you know what the capstone is? I didn't. Let me show you a picture. The capstone is that bit in the top. Helpfully labeled capstone. Do you see that? Now in an archway, that's the really crucial bit, isn't it? That's what stops the whole thing from falling down. It bears the weight of the whole thing. Well, Christ is not only the, the foundation stone the, on which it's all built. He's the capstone. He's the chief glory. He's the head of this temple. He is the central glory place of how we meet with God. Now do you see then, in the light of all of that background, that who you are depends on your response to this utterly unique person, Jesus Christ. Of course it all hinges on him, the living stone. See, there are two groups of people in the world. And it depends, you will either put your trust in him, or you will trip over him as the central person in God's purposes. You will either trust him, 
or you'll trip over him. That's what it says in verse 7 to 8. Have a look at it. Verse 7 to 8. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So two responses. Let's think about them. You can trip over Jesus. Uh, Say, well, now this is all a bit too much. How on earth can you make me think that actually the most important person in 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 history is Jesus? Now, people rejected him in, in in his day, and people continue to reject him today, don't they? Many Jewish people continue to reject him today. There are some Messianic Jews who trust him, but majority do not. Can you see what a tragedy it is? People don't see their need for the very one that God has declared is the crucial person in all humanity. Here is the crucial savior. Here is the crucial king. Peter preached this exact thing in Jerusalem. Um, he, He said this to hostile authorities. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And then he goes on to say this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. He's the only way of salvation. He's the only way to get right with God. Uh, He's the only way to have your sins forgiven. He's the only way you can be saved uh, from that day of judgment that is coming. He is the only way. And we would be doubly condemned on that day if we stand before God, not only with our sins forgiven, but with the knowledge that we rejected the only hope of salvation. There is no other name under heaven given uh, to men by which we must be saved. If you have done that in the past, can I urge you today to change direction? Not to do so today. Uh, there, there may be many reasons why people might choose to reject Christ and uh, go against Him, but I, I'm telling you, He is the most crucial person in history. And your response to Him says everything about your identity and everything about your destiny. Do not reject Christ. Come to him today. See, there are two responses, aren't there? To trip over Christ or to trust Christ. You see, when it says, as you come to him, what does that mean? Well, it it means what it says in verse 7. It means that you believe God's assessment of Jesus Christ, that he is precious that you've actually chosen to build your whole life on him. For him to be the foundation stone of your life. To be the head, the capstone of your life. The, the one who holds your whole life together. And, and, and to be the one who says, well look, although I have not seen him, I, I've come to love him. He's precious to me. He's my savior. He's my Lord. To come to confess your sins. To come and to... Uh, to his cross and receive his pardon, to, uh, to bow the knee to him, 
and recognize that he is Lord and King. You know, to do that, to trust in him, means that you are born again. That you've got this new identity, you've got a living hope, you've got an, an everlasting inheritance, that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, uh, that you can testify that you've received God's mercy, and actually you will be someone who begins to experience that inexpressible and glorious joy that you've built your life on the living stone, the cornerstone, the capstone. There's nothing more solid than that in life. There's nothing else in life that's more solid than building your life on the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Are you doing that? And what Peter says here is that this this changes our identity when we come to him, when we believe on him. That because of who Jesus is, when we build our life on him, uh, then we are a people who have a glorious new identity. And uh, Peter is underlining that here. Um, I think we forget this. And so my job this morning briefly is to be the nurse who comes along and reminds us who we are. And there are three things that it tells us here. Uh, We are the spiritual temple, we are a holy priesthood, and we are a holy nation. You see, salvation, although it happens to us individually, it means that now our new identity is fundamentally corporate. It is what we are together that the Bible keeps talking about. So let's think about these three pictures. Uh, We're a spiritual temple, verse 5. As you come to him, the living stone, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Well, what is this spiritual house? Well, it is the temple. We are being built together as we come to Christ and to be a spiritual temple. So think about this. Where can people go in Edinburgh to meet with God? Where should they go to meet with God? Well, the answer is this. You go wherever Christian believers gather. For there is the spiritual temple and dwelling place of God. Each local church is a visible expression of the the manifestation of the glory of God, His presence among His people. It's not a physical building that you go to. Uh, You know, our Rose Street building here is simply a useful rain shelter where we can gather over 600 people together and we can heat it a bit, which is nice as well, isn't it? But you know what? This is the third building that Charlotte Chapel has had. Uh, The first building um, was too small, got rid of it. It's been knocked down, doesn't exist anymore. But Charlotte Chapel kept going. Uh, The second building uh, was too small after the revival, so it got knocked down, but Charlotte Chapel kept happening. uh, And uh, this is the building that was built. And when this building is uh, sold, Charlotte Chapel doesn't end. No. Uh, The spiritual temple is the gathering of God's people, and it will continue by God's grace. It is an extraordinary thought that this is where people can come to meet with the living God. Wherever Christian believers gather together, we're like living stones that God is bringing together to build a spiritual temple on the foundation of Jesus Christ. This is what God is doing in the world. 
He's gathering people who are lost and scattered and he's gathering them into his everlasting kingdom and he's putting them into communities together that are uh, representations of the one heavenly gathering that meets around Christ. This is what God is doing in the world. And so it doesn't matter where we meet, but it matters that we do meet together. Whether that's in our fellowship groups, our midweek groups, um, we're making visible this spiritual reality. Now Christians who simply float about without ever um, committing to membership of any specific church have forgotten who they are. And they're not fulfilling the purpose for which God saved them. Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian uh, Baptist preacher, put this memorably. Uh, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to any church. Now, why not? Because I can be a Christian without it. Are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to the Lord's commands as by being obedient. There is a brick. What is it made for? To help build a house. It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It's a good-for-nothing brick. So you Rolling Stone Christian, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. Membership class at four. Look forward to seeing you. <laughs> Second thing, we're a holy priesthood. Look at the second half of verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, we're not only the spiritual temple, but the priests of that temple. Teresa read earlier from Exodus chapter 19, which is the, so in a sense, the archetypal picture of the church meeting. It's described as the church at Sinai. And there Moses tells Israel how they should see themselves. They were called to be a priestly kingdom. Now, what did priests ordinarily do? Well, priests made known, uh, made God known to the people and offered sacrifices. And God was calling the whole of Israel as a community to be priestly, to make God known to the nations and call the nations to find atonement through sacrifice. And as God's priestly people, their lives together were supposed to commend the goodness and the glory of God to the rest of the nations. Their holy lives as a community were to be a sort of an advertising a billboard to the societies around them, just pointing them to the goodness of God's kingdom. But now, as those who have come to Jesus Christ, we have become God's holy priesthood. To be part of the people of God now is not about your ethnicity. It is about your faith in Christ. According to the New Testament, there is no special class of Christian called a priest. We still protest about that against the Roman Catholic denomination. There's no special priest who needs to act as a mediator uh, of God's grace to the people. Every believer in Christ, male and female, are set apart to be uh, priests to God with this awesome privilege that they're able to draw near to God equally. This is, a, this is actually an explicit proof text for the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. 
There's no need for a priest. There's no need for a bishop. There's no need for a pope. Through Christ, all believers have equal access to come into God's presence. Now, as time permits, I'm more than happy to meet with people and pray with them. But you know what? My prayers are no more potent or efficacious than any other believer in this church. Uh, I'm blessed to be paid to preach God's word and to play a role in leadership here, but it doesn't offer me any special access into the throne room of God. Every believer has equal access through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are priests unto God. And it is actually as a whole believing community living out our lives together, that we have this same missional calling that was given to Israel to to show the goodness of our God to to an unbelieving world, to the nations around. And, And our role is to point them to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ through which they can have all their sins forgiven. But notice, you know, that's what verse 5 says, isn't it? We're not called to offer animal sacrifices. We're called to offer spiritual sacrifices made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what are spiritual sacrifices? Well, this is a quick, uh, quick New Testament overview of spiritual sacrifices. Romans 12.1, put that up. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. What we do with our bodies... 24-7 is our worship. How we show our obedience to God's word is our worship throughout the week. Philippians 4.18, our financial giving, it says this, I've received full payment and even more, I'm amply supplied, Paul says, now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. No spiritual sacrifice, the Bible says, is our praise. Hebrews 13. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Or later in Hebrews, it says this, by, by doing good and sharing. And do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. We don't offer little sheep or goats anymore, pigeons. It is the fruit of our lips. It is the obedience of our lives. It is the giving of our money and the sharing of our goods and our helpful love and care of each other. These are the living sacrifices that we offer to God, not merely when we meet on a Sunday, but throughout the whole of our lives. Uh, We are called in the Bible not to go to church, but to be the church, to exist together as God's holy priests to be part of this spiritual temple and lastly to be part of his holy nation verse 9 but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light Because of God's electing love, God's people are now found in every continent of the world. There are folk in some islands a hundred miles off the north coast of Papua New Guinea who are now Christians. 
And this is true all over the world. As the gospel reaches people and they too put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls us out of the world to become part of his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that identity is more profound and significant than our nationality or our status. It's a revolutionary idea, actually, that has changed and transformed Western culture. See, first and foremost today, we should not view ourselves as Scottish or English or Welsh or Nigerian or Palestinian or Israeli. But if we put our faith in Christ, we are Christian. We're not upper class, lower class, middle class. We're not slaves or masters. We are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you sense the revolution in that? Well, it, it, it did cause a revolution. It should continue to cause a revolution. It should continue to be transforming. And it is by our living of our lives together as a Christian community that we declare the goodness and the greatness of the God who saved us. He's, he's called us out that we may declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Uh, I visited Isabel Monaghan this last week, and um, it's always encouraging to visit Isabel. You go there thinking, oh, I'm going to encourage her, but you always come out more encouraged yourself. And um, Isabel has had a rough run of it of late, and had a, a nasty fall, and broke her hip, and had, a, had to, he was on holiday, so got rushed down the west coast, had her operation in Paisley, and she was there. Well, how is Isabel feeling about it all? Well, she was absolutely full of joy at all the opportunities God has given her because of her accident. Boy, the people that she, meet, she met that she would never have met unless she fractured her hip. And uh, <laughs> being a good Gideon, she never goes anywhere without at least five to ten New Testaments in her bag because you never know. And... Um, she just kept having opportunities as she read her New Testament. People were interested. And she said, would you like one? I'll give you one. Oh, I'd love one. She had great gospel conversations. She was just rejoicing at the opportunities she's had, even though it's been very painful and very sore. And people just observed the way Isabel behaved, and the nurses kept saying, why are you different? What's different about you? And to see the number of people who visited or called or showed care and love and interest from, from the Christian community, they say, well, what, what's going on with you? It's Christ, isn't it? Christ who brings us into a community of love and care. And as we do that, the world notices. It sees. It observes about the goodness and the greatness of God. I hear this over and over again, how family members and friends who are not Christians are stunned to see meals appear for mums who've just had babies as a practical love expression of the church, of people in the church cooking food for them. People come on Sunday and are amazed to see all the different ages, uh, all the different backgrounds, all joining together in worship to God. What will silence a skeptical world that is opposed to Jesus Christ and opposed to those who follow him will be the loving good deeds of Christians together in community living out this reality that we're a spiritual temple that we are priests that we're part of this holy 
nation. To see a community that love Jesus, love others, and who love life is actually what will win a skeptical and unbelieving world. And we're going to see that as we go on in First Peter. As he keeps stressing, the good deeds that they do will cause people to ask for the reason, for the hope that we have. Why are you different? Why is it like this? Oh, well, you've got to come to know Jesus. You see, as we've come to know him, he's the one who's changed us. He's the one who's brought us together. He's our joy. He's our delight. He's, he's the reason that we are who we are. And to know this, if we experience rejection and antipathy, that's exactly how the living stone was treated. Isn't that right? Rejected by men, but notice this, chosen by God and precious to him. If we're beginning to feel the, the alienation of a society's rejection, if we're beginning to, uh, sort of, people trying to make us feel shame for our Christian faith, know this, even as we experience rejection, we are chosen by God and we are precious to him. And the one who trusts in him, verse 6, will never be put to shame. My friends, if you're not trusting Christ, you will be put to shame. And now is the day of opportunity. Now is the day to come to Christ and trust him. Confess your sins. Take him as your savior and your Lord. And I can guarantee it that if you put your trust in him... God's word promises, and I believe it, you will never be put to shame. Let's pray.